Good morning. Before I call the first case, I want to extend a warm welcome to Professor Donna Nixon and her introduction to the law of the United States class from UNC School of Law. Uh, welcome. Uh, this class uh, provides an introduction to the American legal system for foreign exchange students. It seems the students this semester are from the Netherlands, so welcome. Our first case this morning is State versus Richardson, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. Good morning, Your Honors. Jim Grant with the Office of the Appellate Defender, along with my colleague, Catherine Vandenberg, and our appellate defender, Glenn Girding. We're here on behalf of Mr. Richardson. I'd like to reserve five minutes of our time for rebuttal. And just to let the court know, Ms. Vandenberg and I intend to roughly split our time. I'm prepared to discuss issue one, which is the statutory recusal issue in the briefing. Ms. Vandenberg will discuss issues nine and 10, which are the equal protection jury selection claims, just to kind of level set for the court. In 1991, a woman was accused of hiring a hitman to murder her husband. The husband was shot three times at his front door, uh, but he survived and the wife was prosecuted for conspiracy to commit murder. And even though two of her alleged co-conspirators testified against her, she was ultimately acquitted. Unsurprisingly, that couple eventually divorced and custody proceedings for their then two-year-old son proceeded. About 20 years later, that little boy is now a young man, and he stands accused of capital murder in one of the more emotional and highly publicized cases in the state in recent memory. His defense lawyers investigate his, their client's background and learn about the history of abuse in the home and untreated mental illness, including this incident 20 years earlier where his mother was prosecuted for trying to kill his father. They know they have to interview that district attorney who prosecuted the mother. They don't know exactly what that district attorney will say or what he experienced or what he remembers, but they know that he had all but literally a front row seat to some extreme family dysfunction, the sort of family dysfunction that even in far less extreme circumstances, the United States Supreme Court has said again and again constitutes persuasive mitigating evidence that counsel not only should investigate, but in some circumstances is a constitutional duty to investigate. There's just one problem. That DA from 20 years ago, he's now the senior resident judge, and he's presiding over the client's capital murder trial. And despite remembering that case he lost that 20 years ago, um, a case that clearly affected him. He apparently attended some of the custody proceedings for Mr. Richardson when he was a child that followed. This now judge refuses to talk to anyone about his observations or experience of prosecuting Mr. Richardson's mother. He denies a formal discovery request to that effect. And even though this is two years before trial and there are theoretically dozens of judges that could step in, uh, he insists on presiding. Does he refuse to discuss these matters, or does he say he doesn't recall anything that would be meaningful? Oh, no, Your Honor. Well, he says that he uh, recalls the events of the proceeding, um, remembers it. Uh, and in fact, the judge who entered the recusal order uh, denying the, the motion for recusal found that this district attorney had, who's now a judge, had significant involvement in the, in the prosecution of the mother. Was that Judge Ammons? Judge Ammons enters the order as it pertains to Judge Locke, who is the district attorney now judge. Yes, Your Honor. So they file this motion to recuse, which is heard by a different judge. Uh, that motion is denied. The trial proceeds. Serious errors of law occur, as we argue in the remainder of our brief, uh, and the client is sentenced to death. It shouldn't have happened this way, and here's why. Over 50, almost 50 years ago, our General Assembly enacted a statute, 15A1223E, which reads as follows. I want to read it in its current version. Quote, a judge must disqualify himself from presiding over a criminal trial or proceeding if he is a witness for or against one of the parties. By refusing to step aside in this case, in which he was plainly a witness, Judge Locke violated the plain and unambiguous direction of the statute, and Judge Ammon's well, order- Counsel, let me, let me ask. The, the statute says for or against a party. Yes, Your Honor. Is that right? Uh, did, did defense counsel subpoena Judge Locke? Defense counsel did not subpoena the sitting judge on their case, no, but they did file a formal discovery request and a request for uh, a deposition, which was well, how, how do you secure a witness for your side? Uh, you would, if it's not the presiding judge, you would presumably file a subpoena. Well, or if, you think he's, if you think the individual's a witness, would you issue a subpoena? 
it seems to me it would be inappropriate to issue a subpoena to a, the presiding judge in a trial. If, if, if the presiding judge is a material witness, why would you not issue a subpoena? Because I think a precondition to that, Your Honor, would be the judge recognizing that he is a witness and recusing himself under the plain language of the statute. Well, and you meant, okay, under, right. under the plain language of the statute, it's only if he is a material witness. No, Your Honor, quite the opposite. It is not if he is a material witness I'm under sorry, the statute. I'm that, sorry, that's under the... That's under canon three. The canon. So, so our point here, with, with regards to the statute, is that this court, Judge Ammons, exercising, you know, in hearing it, I think had a misapprehension about this statute. There are, he, he basically graphs three extra textual provisions onto the statute that simply are not there. And in so doing, essentially exercises the legislative authority rewriting this statute in a way that makes it, in essence, more convenient for, for everyone involved. He finds, um, you know, a witness is a witness, which, you know, defined by a dictionary definition or Rule 601 or pick your definition, is simply someone with firsthand knowledge of an event who can testify to that. So what, what does the preposition then mean for a party? Just for either party, as a witness who would be called by either party in a criminal proceeding. And, and again, how can you call a, a witness for a party if you have not issued a subpoena? The, the, no, not every witness at a trial requires the issuance of a subpoena, Your Honor. Witnesses can voluntarily uh, attend a proceeding and testify. A, witness, a subpoena would be necessary for an individual who does not wish to reveal what they know, well, who is not the presiding. You could also get a material witness order, right? Uh, was, was there any effort to get a material witness order for Judge Locke? Your Honor, there was a motion for discovery to depose Judge Locke about his knowledge, which was denied. I don't think that there's any support for the idea that as a necessary precondition for invoking the statute, you would have to issue a subpoena to the presiding well, judge. Was there a request prior to trial that Judge Locke come testify? Yes, Your Honor. Se separate, two, apart two. From, separate apart from the deposition, right? You indicated earlier that you could just ask someone to come. Was there, was there that request made to Judge Locke? Yes, Your Honor. And he refused to talk to the defense and said, I'm not going to recuse and I'm not going to talk about anything that I remember from that event. I mean, is, I don't is, under is that a, a request to uh, depose or uh, obtain information, or is that a request to testify at trial? There were there were there was an in, there was a request, a formal request that he discuss with the defense what his knowledge was. That request was denied. There is a request to perform a deposition on him. That is denied. Then there is a request to recuse him, presumably so that they can then avail themselves of the, the right to compulsory process that they have and issue a subpoena or make a motion for a deposition or interrogatories or whatever the proper procedure might be. But it's not as if that would have made any difference. I mean, Judge Locke denied this request, and then Judge Ammons then ratified that decision to deny the request. And I don't think the issuance of a subpoena would have changed the outcome of this. Uh, the defense did what it needed to do to say, hey, listen, we think this is a potential mitigating witness. And we need to, you know, figure out what, if anything, we have here. And you need to recuse under the statute in order to do that. And he simply refused. And then the trial court issues this order where, again, completely ignores the plain text of the statute and, and, and engrafts and interpolates these three separate provisions. Right? The court found that Judge Locke was not required to recuse because he was not, quote, a material witness. Well, that word material doesn't appear anywhere in this statute. That's Canon 3 talks about material witnesses, but Canon 3 also talks about how Canon 3 is not itself an exhaustive list of grounds for recusal. And we have this statute, which although there's no case law, I would submit there's no case law because any judge who believed he was a potential witness likely would recuse in a case far less serious than this. But there's no need for any case law because the statute's plain and ambiguous. So when a statute's language is plain and ambiguous, this court applies the plain meaning. Judge Locke was a witness. He was a witness for a party. He must recuse per the terms of the statute. There is no requirement that it be material, as Judge Hammonds found. There is no argument, there is no, uh, nothing in the statute about their having to make some sort of proffer that this is more than mere speculation, which again, we would quibble with that characterization. Can I quick follow up about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Suppose uh, your defense counsel in a case and you realize, I think this is going south with this judge, uh, Your Honor, we're going to call you as a witness. This, you know, a hyperbolic example. That, I assume you'll concede that's not going to work. But 
It's not going to Why not? Well, the reason it doesn't work, Your Honor, is because, one, if they were called as a the, the reason why that doesn't work is because in practicality it would never happen. Right, but, we, lawyer, but I need the that, legal that, reason, which is there some sort of materiality element, some minimum one, so you couldn't play that kind of gamesmanship? Not, not per the statute, Your Honor. We've explained in the brief why we don't think that sort of gamesmanship is ever going to manifest itself. This is an extraordinary case. These facts are kind of wild. This is not something that is going to happen routine, and a lawyer who did this sort of judge shopping that you're suggesting, Your Honor, would you know, quickly alienate both the bench and bar in which he practices and would be facing serious ethics charges, because that would be a completely frivolous request. But would be zealously representing I, I don't think your I don't think your duty to zealously represent right. your client extends to doing something Right, but you understand right. what I'm getting at. The real point is, is there implicit <clears throat> in there some sort of requirement that it be material, or otherwise, you know, you, these sorts of things could happen? No, Your Honor, and, and you know, there, you could, one could make a policy argument for why that would be a good idea to have a material requirement. But this court doesn't make policy, and our courts don't make policy. The General Assembly does, and the General Assembly in the form of this statute. The words material witness appear all throughout the general statutes. I think, I don't recall if it was in the entire general statutes or just in Chapter 15A. It's like 20-something times. The legislature knows how to do this, and you have a statute that is sort of over and above Canon 3 in terms of what it requires. I think it's a safe assumption that the General Assembly meant what it said when it wrote this. I want to yield the balance of my time, unless there are questions on this issue, to Ms. Vandenberg to give her an opportunity. Um, thank you. Good morning. As Mr. Grant said, I'm Kathy Vandenberg here for Mr. Richardson. Both the JEB and Batson claims involve clear errors in the trial court's application of the prima facie standard errors that were directly contrary to controlling U.S. law. The prima facie standard in the first step requires only evidence sufficient to raise an inference of discrimination, and it's meant to be a very low threshold under Batson and Johnson versus California. I want to be clear about what discrimination means in this context. It does not mean striking a juror out of hatred or animus. It means striking a juror based on a belief that people of a certain gender or race would be unfavorable to the case. JEB and Batson prohibit strikes based on stereotype characteristics. Equal protection requires that jurors be judged individually. I believe we're going to talk a lot about Batson throughout today, and I want to um, briefly discuss JEB, which is unique to this case. JEB was only decided in 1994. It talked at length about the history of gender discrimination in this country as part of the context for its ruling, including the fact that women were completely excluded from jurors well into the 20th century. North Carolina didn't, improve, uh, didn't approve women jurors until 1947. They were kept off juries on the grounds that they were too fragile and needed to be protected. The JEB opinion noted that the same excuses for keeping women off juries altogether were still being used to support peremptory strikes of individual women. JEB firmly held that it violates equal protection to exclude women based on assumptions that arise from their gender. Turning to the facts here, first on the JEB claim, at the time the prosecutor struck Juror Massey, he had struck four of 12 women, or 33%, and one of seven men, or 14%. That's over twice the rate striking men compared to women. A disparate strike pattern alone is sufficient to raise an inference at the prima facie stage. Under Batson itself. Me, counsel, let me ask you about um, Juror Massey. Mm -hmm. um, she, she had indicated that uh, she was a Christian, and because of her beliefs, uh, that it was not up to uh, people, essentially, uh, to make the decision to take someone else's life. Is that, is that right? Your Honor, the problem with going into reasons that Ms. Massey could have been struck is that the Supreme Court says we don't consider reasons that a juror might have been struck at the prima facie stage. And when we do consider them, those reasons have to come from the prosecutor at trial and not from subsequent counsel or um, judges. I'm sorry. So in, in, in correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in Hobbs in 2020, this court said... Uh, that questions and statements of the prosecutor, which tend to support or refute an inference of discrimination, support or refute 
an inference of discrimination are to be considered? That's the questions that are asked, and you're talking about whether prosecutors question certain types of jurors differently than other types of jurors, and that can be a factor, certainly. But, but that's not discussing the answers that Ms. Massey gave. Well, and Ms. Massey was originally attempted to be struck for cause because of her answers. Isn't that correct? I believe that's true, yes. And, and then uh, once an objection was lodged that uh, cause was perhaps not uh, appropriate, then she was struck peremptorily. And again, that may have been part of the reason for the strike. It may not have been part of the reason for the strike. We don't know unless the prosecutor is asked at step two what the reasons were for the strike. Well, she also indicated that she could not give her full attention to the case. Same answer. Okay, but, but that, that is uh, another valid reason to strike a juror. It, it might be. Okay, so there, there are two valid reasons that the prosecutor announced. The prosecutor did not announce those reasons. I'm, I'm sorry, those are uh, reasons uh, the juror indicated um, or in, in response to questions uh, the juror provided. The juror said a lot of things in the response to questions, and at step one, we don't consider that. At step one, can the uh, court consider uh, in the totality of the circumstances uh, the responses of a particular juror? I don't believe that it, well, it's hard to, I mean, the totality of the responses you say generally, not? yeah, but the court cannot create reasons. And the, uh, the, point the, the court's not creating a reason if it simply is considering answers that were given. Well, it depends on how the court is using that information. Um, I'd like to talk because the state um, got into the Bennett ruling um, where Justice Urban wrote about immediately obvious justifications. Um, and the state used that at length in its brief. And I'd like to... Well, but, but before you go there, I just want to make sure I understand your position. Uh, do you believe that Hobbs was incorrect when it said questions and statements of the prosecutor which tend to support or refute an inference of discrimination uh, were appropriate to consider at stage one? Uh, is that an incorrect statement? I think it depends on how you read that. I think the questions that were asked during voir dire and the things that the prosecutor said during the voir dire can be considered by the court. I think reasons that the prosecutor gives afterward to explain the strike are appropriate only for step two and beyond. And um, Hobbs again says, our prior cases have identified a number of factors to consider when determining whether a defendant has made out a prima facie case, which include, right, and, and include but not limited to. So there are other factors that can be considered. True. Okay, so those other factors uh, are in the totality of the circumstances or the totality of the information in voir dire uh, that, that have been provided either by prosecutors or by uh, potential jurors. True, except if you're talking about a specific reason. That is step two, clearly, under Batson and every other case that's come after it about Batson and JEB. <clears throat> well, so, so is it your contention that... Um, the answers provided by Ms. Massey on their face um, are insufficient for a strike. Are insufficient for a strike. My contention is that at the prima facie stage, you look at the totality of circumstances, that the bar is very low, and that you can look beyond, um, you cannot look beyond, ugh, I'm twisting myself in a knot here. Um, The court at the prima facie stage considers the totality of circumstances. The bar is very low. One of those circumstances is the strike rate of this prosecutor. Well, if, if, if a juror has fallen asleep during, during um, uh, voir dire, why isn't that plain on its face, regardless of race? Well, if it's that plain on its face, the juror would be struck for cause, for one thing. For another thing, there may be some reason that appears immediately obvious to one attorney or judge that is not the reason for the strike. There could be discrimination along with a reason that sounds legitimate. And if a juror says, you know, I, I work, I just cannot pay attention uh, during this trial, I'll do my best, uh, why is that not on its face a valid reason for a strike? 
that's a valid reason for cause. And if the judge has found there is no cause, then I think you're in the area where you need to hear from the attorney at step two. That's what Batson says. That's why we have a low bar as a prima facie case, and then we move on to the reasons. It's not a hard thing for a prosecutor to state its reasons, and in fact, I would say it's preferable to do it at the time rather than to wait years later and try and remember what the reasons are. Well, but under Hoffman and Robinson, uh, I'm sorry, Hoffman and Locklear, prosecutors not required to give a reason at stage one. Correct. And That's why you move on from stage one to stage two. Well, I'm arguing the, low, the bar should be low enough that we can get to the real analysis. And, and if um, the, the court finds there is no prima facie case that's been made at step one, uh, we don't consider step two. I mean, that's, Correct. that's Hoffman and Locklear. Correct. And, and where did the trial court stop here? Where did the trial? At step one. Right. We didn't get to step two. I believe he offered the state an opportunity, but it wasn't taken. Um, I do want to talk about the immediately obvious justification language in Bennett, um, which I believe is contrary to U.S. Supreme Court um, framework that it set out in Batson and all the subsequent cases where even if there is something that seems obvious to someone, that's not enough to avoid getting to step two. And Justice Urban isn't here to explain himself, but I contend that that part of Bennett is incorrect and it should not be part of the prima facie analysis. What, what, how would you articulate step one? There has to be, considering the totality of circumstances, sufficient evidence to raise an inference of discrimination. And what factors are considered? Well, the main um, evidence in most of the cases is a strike rate. Um, and in fact, that reminds me to be sure and make the point that in this case, the trial court refused to consider historical information that was offered, um, which is relevant going back to Batson and even Swain before it. Um, and there's no deference to a trial court's ruling when the trial court didn't follow the rules that were in front of it in the first place. And the total refusal to look at the past strike rate, which informs the current strike rate in this case, um, clearly was error under Supreme Court law on its own before you even get to the prima facie ruling. But, when you say, I'm sorry. But you would agree that in the totality of the circumstances, the trial court should consider the answers of the jurors to various questions. Yes, I would agree that. I mean, that's what we're looking at is the voir dire, what the prosecutor said, what the juror responded, what the defense attorney said, how the juror responded. But immediately obvious justification is not accurate. You can't look at, you can't create what the reason would have been that the prosecutor changed his mind, and there's many cases from the United States Supreme Court that say that. We don't know what the prosecutor was thinking, even if it seems obvious to you or to me. Can you clarify one thing about your position? Is it, are you saying that um, you can't consider it as part of the totality of the circumstances, or that it, it can be part of the totality of the circumstances, though, at the prima facie can't consider stage one? What's your if answer? there was an answer that's uh -huh. obvious, in what you described as the obvious answer like that, is that something that's part of the totality of the circumstances, or is your view that's off limits entirely in, in, in this No, I, I think it's part of the circumstances, but deciding what the prosecutor's reason is, it can't be part of the circumstances. Those are, it's hard to separate those two, but I believe that is what the Supreme Court says. Speaking of the totality of the circumstances, Mathematically, when is the data relevant uh, for the purpose of the analysis, uh, especially when it comes to a threshold of mm -hmm. the math to be considered? Right. So I don't think there's a bright line. In this case, in the, in the instant trial, they were on volume 10 of the transcript. They were about a third of the way through jury selection, and there was a substantial number of jurors who had come through. Um, the numbers in this case were about equivalent than the as those in Bennett. 
And um, I don't know if you're also asking about historical data in terms of timing. I'm interested in that. Okay. Um, I think the closer the historical data is in time, obviously it becomes more relevant. But an additional problem is whether, say there's a history, as there was in this case, of consistently striking black people two or three times as often as white people, or women twice as often as men. If there's a history like that in the case, if I were the judge, I would want to hear some reasons about the strike, and I would want to find out if the prosecutor has made any changes in his approach. Like, what is what would lead you to the inference that things are better now, unless when, unless there's some information in front of you? When is the sample size sufficiently meaningful? I think it depends on the case and how the how the jury selection is being run. Sometimes they do one person at a time. You know, it would be pretty hard to do your very first strike and make, an, make a case. And if someone made a Batson motion in that case, I doubt it would be granted unless there was some egregious thing. And, and it just is a totality um, situation. I'm going to reserve the remaining. Actually, counsel, I'm sorry. I have a question. Down here. Oh, hi. Um, I'm just a little confused. So I believe I heard you say that uh, juror responses are part of the totality of the facts um, that the trial court may consider at, state, at step one in Batson. Um, but then you said, I think, that even if what a juror said provides an immediately obvious race-neutral reason for a strike, that that's essentially meaningless. So to what extent is the trial court able to consider juror responses? I, I, I'm confused as to when or how the trial court would make use of them. It, that's a tricky question, and that's a problem with the immediately obvious language, and that, I think that's why it doesn't appear, because you're blurring step one and step two. I think the court can consider the totality, but it can't substitute its own judgment about what's an obvious reason. And as I was saying earlier, there could be a reason that seems obvious, but the prosecutor could also really be trying to get women off the jury in addition to that reason. And that could be a substantial reason for the strike, even if there's also another reason. And that's why you need to hear from the prosecutor at step two and why the bar at prima facie stage is so low. Thank and you, counsel. Mm -hmm. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court, my name is Kimberly Callahan, and I'm here today uh, with co-counsel Teresa Postel. We are Special Deputy Attorneys General with the Department of Justice, and together we represent the state. This is likely the most horrific murder and severe torture of a child that has ever been before this court. The evidence at trial showed that for 10 days, four-year-old Taylor sustained innumerable injuries that cannot be adequately described by words or medical diagnoses, but included tears in the flesh of her face, 66 bite marks all over her body, chunks of skin missing, lacerations that looked like she had been whipped 50 to 100 times, there was copper embedded in her skin, one of her fingernails was removed, her, both of her arms were broken, there was extensive evidence of sexual assault, and a severe head injury from blunt force trauma. No part of her body was spared, and she was eventually declared brain dead. And even these words today cannot describe the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse that Taylor endured at the hands of the defendant. He received a fair trial, free of prejudicial error, and his convictions and death sentence should be affirmed. Um, for purposes of clarity, I will be addressing the three issues that have uh, been raised by defendant's principal um, argument today. Um, if this court has any questions regarding the other evidentiary issues uh, that were raised at trial, I will do my very best to yield sometimes for my co-counsel co so that you can ask her questions if, if the court is interested. 
the basis of the motion to recuse Judge Locke was that he was potentially the source of vital information concerning the prosecution of defendant's mother. The motion alleged that he could potentially have a lot of knowledge about the case against defendant's mother. He presumably interacted with the victim, Doug Richardson, his father, and that he could give observations of the defendant's mother throughout the trial. There are several problems with this motion to recuse. Um, and I think it's important to note at the outset that we are talking about not a discretionary decision for a judge or justice to decide they would rather not be on a case, but one that is required, that a judge or justice is required to recuse. Now, in State versus Scott, this court held that both the statute and the canons of judicial conduct are considered in determining whether a judge is required to recuse themselves. Now, that was under a partiality analysis, but the same has to be true here. Um, there is a, we, we didn't talk about this much in the principal argument, but there is a presumption against judicial testimony, calling a judge or even a prosecutor to be a witness at a trial. And in State versus Simpson, uh, this court held that if there are other witnesses uh, that can be called that give the same type of information, then the trial court does not err by refusing to allow a party to call a judge or prosecutor as a witness because the defendant can be protected in other ways, because there are other avenues of information for him to uh, get the information that he is seeking. And this is true here. Even if you take the allegations in the motion as true, we've talked a lot about the motion for discovery, the motion to compel Judge Locke to um, do a pretrial depos deposition um, or to speak with the defense, there was a separate order entered, and they have not challenged that order. Uh, this is specific to him being a, quote, potential witness. Not a witness, as just Justice Berger pointed out, they didn't subpoena him. Uh, they alleged in their brief they didn't have to. Uh, they didn't even have to subpoena him. They can allege that he is a witness, he's a potential witness, they don't have to show what he would testify as to. Uh, they don't even have to call him as a witness. It's just a potential witness, and he is forced to recuse. When Not in was, his discretion, but again, he is required to refuse. Yes. When he was designated as a potential witness, was that a fact witness, or was that in the eventuality, potentially, that there would be a sentencing hearing? He, he was never designated as a witness, period. They, they, they tried to uh, recuse him based, on, based on his potential to be a witness. And I think that goes to another part of the argument is, does he actually have relevant information um, that would be admissible at a capital sentencing hearing? And the, question, the, the answer to that question is no. But well, how, I'm sorry. I, I just had one more to more fully develop it. Thank you. Uh, was it ever more fully developed in the record that uh, if he was called as a witness, Judge Locke, uh, Judge Locke that uh, he would be in the fact presentation or whether or not it would be in the eventuality that it would reach sentencing should there have been a finding of guilt? I think, yes, that, those were the allegations that he could possibly be a witness as to uh, defendant's family background, which broadly is a category that could possibly be admissible at a capital sentencing hearing. However, under this court's uh, precedent and under Supreme Court of the United States precedent, the conduct of third parties uh, is irrelevant 
as mitigating evidence in a capital sentencing hearing unless the defendant can somehow present a foundation of how it affected him or her in particular. Yeah, and lastly, for clarification, and thank you, Justice Searles, it was just a matter of trying to determine whether the adjective potential meant potential if it reached a point of sentencing or potential as in he may have been determined to have been called voluntarily at any point. Your Honor, that's not that's not exactly clear. All I have is the allegations in the moment that that he could potentially be a witness, and they wanted to talk to him after they had talked to both defendant's mother and father and various family members. They had gotten a signed waiver from the mother so that they could could talk to her attorney. Um, so he was potentially a witness at sentencing, but that doesn't mean and their their allegations in their brief to this court said, well, we don't even have to show that he was going to actually be called. So I'm not exactly sure what they meant, if they were going to actually call him or, or not, Your Honor. So, so my question is, going back to your statement that um, uh, the answer to the question of whether he has relevant information is no. I understand your argument that the only information he could have would be about a third party and that wouldn't be, so it wouldn't be relevant on those grounds. And I think um, the defendant would say that, that the uh, family dynamics that he grew up in and particularly if, if this judge had observed custody hearings, he would have information about family dynamics. So I understand that. I understand that. Um, debate, but how do you, how does a court determine whether he has relevant, that, or how does the court determine that his information can't be relevant when he won't say what information he has? And that's a fair point, Your Honor, but we have to go back to what the standard actually is. The, it is the defendant's burden to show substantial evidence that this judge has, you know, some some information uh, that is pertinent to his case. He has to demonstrably, obje <laughs> let's see, de demonstrate objectively that this this judge has to be, this judge has to be called and there's no other way for his rights to be protected and that's just simply not the case. But isn't, but isn't that what they were trying to do by summon, by asking him to sit for a deposition so they could learn what he knows? Certainly, Your Honor. I, I, I... And just to be clear that the state's argument here, so that we don't go too far, um, you would agree that if this judge had had previously prosecuted this defendant for some other offense, that that would disqualify him from, he, would be, he could potentially be a witness at the sentencing stage for a number of possible aggravating or mitigating factors and that it, that it wouldn't be appropriate for him as a witness to serve as the judge in the case. Well, Your Honor, in State versus, I would point you to State versus Scott, which is, of course, an older opinion <coughs> where a judge presided over assault charges on a particular defendant that were eventually dropped, um, but that did not preclude him from presiding over the same defendant's trial. But the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on this issue since then, correct? On that particular issue? On the question of whether or not it satisfies due process for a judge to rule in a case where he served as a prosecutor earlier. That, in William, Williams versus Pennsylvania, sure, yes. certainly, yes. yes. But that case is markedly distinguishable from this case where the prosecutor two decades ago prosecuted defendant's mother when he was one years old and he didn't even have knowledge of this until he was in high school. Right. And so but just but, but you do agree we have to follow Williams. Certainly, but Williams is materially distinguishable from this situation, Your Honor. That would be my argument, yes. Um counsel you, you the state in its brief talks about case law that uh, has a or discusses a presumption against judicial testimony. Um, I think you would agree that no such presumption is reflected in the the, the language of 15A, um, 1223, right? It, right. No. It says. Uh, so why should we? And, and as the um, uh, 
defense counsel pointed out, uh, the word material doesn't appear in the statute. Why should we read that presumption against judicial testimony into the statute? Well, I'm not asking you to read it into the statute. What this court said in Scott is that the statute and the canons of judicial conduct are both uh, read together when deciding an issue of whether a judge is required to be recused. And so I'm not asking you to read it into the statute. I'm just asking this court to read them in tandem. And it makes sense because it doesn't say, the statute also doesn't say that the judge has to recuse if they are, quote, a potential witness. It says if they are a witness for or against a party. And if they're going to be called as a witness, certainly there's got to be some sort of reason why. Um, And because there is this presumption against judicial testimony and reasons for judges and prosecutors not to be called um, as a witness in a trial, it just makes sense to do the same thing here. Um, But even if you don't, the defendant's argument still fails because they argue that he doesn't even have to actually be a witness to be required to recuse, and that simply cannot be the law. Thank you. And I'd just like to add, uh, even if this was, even if this court were to find this was an error, it certainly did not rise to the level of a due process violation, um, which is the only, um, the only way that this would be, quote, a structural error and reversible per se, and the defendant has not made any type of prejudice analysis in either of their briefs. Um, I'll move on to uh, Batson and JEB, unless the court has other questions about the order denying Judge Locke's recusal. Also, I would just like to add that Judge Locke did the right thing here. He called judicial standards who told him he did not have to recuse. He referred the motion to a second judge who also found that he did not have to recuse. None of the findings in Judge Ammon's orders have been challenged, um, that he didn't have any knowledge prior to or after the prosecution of um, defendant's mother. And so I'd just like to point that out for the court as well. Um, we've, talked, we've talked about JEB primarily, um, but of course under Batson and JEB the same um, analysis is used to determine whether a prima facie case of an inference of discrimination has been made in this case. And can I just ask you about that, uh, applying the same standard? Because it seems to me that in addition to the U.S. constitutional equal protection guarantee that would prohibit a prosecutor from excluding a woman from a jury because of her gender, Mm -hmm. we also have um, Article 1, Section 26, I think I'm right, of the North Carolina Constitution, which explicitly says that no person shall um, be denied um, the, the ability to serve on a jury because of their race, um, sex, age, or national origin. So d- do we, should we consider that the North Carolina Constitution um, sort of reinforces uh, the, the commitment of the people of the state to have juries that aren't selected on the basis of impermissible considerations? You can certainly consider that, but this court has said it's the same analysis under both the federal and state constitution. And the defendants have not made an argument specifically under the North Carolina Constitution that it's any different here. The prima facie case, of course, is a totality test. Uh, You take into consideration all of the relevant circumstances that are presented to the court. Um, I guess I can start with JEB since that's where the defense started. Um, but here we have, you know, 106 uh, members of the jury veneer that were called into the uh, jury box for a voir dire. 
um, they relied exclusively on the statistics to argue uh, that there was a JEB violation. And those statistics are uh, four out of 11 women and one out of five men. So 33% strike rate. That also means that there was a 67% acceptance rate. There was seven out of the 11 women that were eligible for jury service that were passed by the state. That is the only factor that they relied on here. And an acceptance rate of 67% of women prospective jurors um, is a factor that goes against an intentional, you know, an inference of intentional discrimination. Um, the final composition of the jury was seven women and five men. Uh, Are the numbers insignificant because of insufficient sample size or the percentages are not significant enough to be a concern? They're, they're not significant enough to be of concern, Your Honor. They say the, 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 strike rate, the strike rate is twice that of the men prospective jurors. However, there was twice as many women who were eligible for jury service. At, at that point, there had been 24 calls excusals, and 11 women and five men remained. And so there was twice as many women as there were men eligible to be uh, seated on the jury. And so that strike rate is insignificant. There was seven women that were passed. That's an acceptance rate of 67%. And that simply just does not. That's the only thing that they contended below as to their JEB claim. And that is not a prima facie case of gender discrimination or even an inference of gender discrimination. Moving over to the Batson analysis, um, as I said, there was 106 prospective jurors in the box. Um, 89 were white prospective jurors. Uh, there were 12 that were black prospective jurors, two Hispanic prospective jurors, um, two that were blank, and one that uh, labeled their race as mixed. Um, Cuba Macy was the prospective juror that was challenged under Batson and JEB. She was the 36th juror out of 106, so we were barely a third of the way through jury selection at this point. Uh, the state had used, the, the state used their fifth uh, peremptory strike on Ms. Macy. Uh, they had previously stricken three white prospective jurors and one black prospective juror, and she was the second. Um, so at the hearing, the defense relied on a strike rate of 66% because they, the state has stricken two of the three black prospective jurors that had been put in the box. But again, we were just a third of the way through jury trial, or sorry, jury selection. Um, <coughs> And there were only 12 black prospective jurors that were even uh, put in the jury box. But they, the, the state and the defense did, had no way of knowing. These prospective jurors were put into panels of 20 and were randomly called to individual voir dire. So there was no telling what race or what gender the next juror uh, to come into the box was. Um, and so it's just happenstance that the state struck two of the three uh, black jurors, or black prospective jurors, and one was seated on the jury, Gloria Taylor. Um, the numerical, numeral analysis, numerical analysis is not, doesn't tell this whole story here, because at the end of the day, the state passed three of the six eligible black prospective jurors in this case, giving them a rate of 50% acceptance. Um, there was also the, the, the only use of a peremptory strike after Ms. Macy against a black prospective juror was further down the road 
And the Batson objection was not raised at that point, which gives an inference under this court's ruling in State versus Davis uh, that the state wasn't using um, their peremptory strikes to, in a pattern to um, you know, discriminate against a particular minority. Um, there was no disparate questioning. The trial court even stated that, you know, the state was kind of stuck to a script for each juror based on their, you know, whether they were male or female or whatever their race was. Uh, both the victim in this case and the uh, defendant were, their race was white. Um, all of the witnesses were either white or El Salvadorian. Uh, there was no racial bias or uh, no racial claims in this, this case that would make it charge um, for a general, you know, susceptibility to racial discrimination. Um, and then we have the, what they allege as historical evidence. Uh, Council, and, and I'm sorry to maybe fast forward and, and just so, so I'm clear. Yes, Your Honor. H historical evidence in this case is uh, the study out of MSU. Is that right, or do I have that confused? So it's sort of difficult to understand from the transcript, I believe that the study was submitted because one of the prosecutors did say there's 30 pages here, so I assume that is the study. But what the defense was relying on uh, was not the study in particular, but it was this affidavit that gave raw numbers from four cases um, that one of the prosecutors, Greg Butler, um, had capital cases that he had prosecuted. No, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and so, again, am I correct that the uh, trial court indicated that with the affidavit, uh, because it wasn't the, uh, the state was not allowed to cross-examine or uh, uh, look into the information that was included, uh, that uh, the trial court was not going to consider the affidavit? Do I have that right? That is correct, Your Honor. Yes. It, it, the, there is a very lengthy discussion between both the parties on whether or not the court should um, consider this information. The defense presented Miller L, which says historical information can be considered. Uh, what Miller L doesn't say is what type of evidence can be considered as alleged historical evidence of racial discrimination. And, and let, so let, let me ask you a question that uh, I, I, I think is in your, in your brief, but, but I, I want to make sure I understand or, or at least probe this. Given that um, Batson issues now are basically many trials, should the rules of evidence apply uh, to, uh, to these many trials? Your Honor, I can't point you to a case that says whether or not rules of evidence apply. I can't point you to uh, Rule 1101 of our rules of evidence that say the rules of evidence apply to everything except for these exceptions, and jury selection is not one of them. However, the Supreme Court of the United States has said, we're not going to create formal rules. Basically, however the trial court wants to handle a Batson hearing, it's in their discretion. We're not going to create formalistic rules um, and tell each individual judges how to handle a Batson hearing. So, so application of the rules of evidence would not be error. No, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you. No, Your Honor. Counsel, neither side has uh, broached this issue, but before all the time runs out, I just wanted to hear what the state's position would be on this aspect of the statements that were made by the defendant at the hospital uh, concerning the Miranda concerns after he wanted to leave the hospital and was tackled mm -hmm. by the nurse, not allowed to leave. Mm -hmm and then the defendant made some statements. Is Miranda an issue here? Has there been a violation of Miranda? And perhaps if there has been, is that why you continue to emphasize that there's no prejudicial error as opposed to perhaps the state admitting maybe there was error, but that it's not to the level of being prejudicial? I would, I would answer this twofold. First, I do not believe there was a Miranda violation because 
the actions of Ms. Butler and tackling the defendant cannot be imputed to law enforcement unless she was acting as their agent. And it's very clear from the record that she was acting out of her own, uh, I don't think it would be incorrect to say rage, after seeing this child and the injuries that presumably uh, defendant committed at that, at that point because he was the one that brought her in there. Um, she did. She, she said, you're not going anywhere, and she put him in a room. And then law enforcement showed up. Um, I think if you look at the totality of the circumstances, you have one plainclothes officer, one officer in uniform. They're just there to talk to the defendant. He was the one that brought her into the hospital. Um, obviously, they had no knowledge of what we all know at this point. Um, the door was open. He wasn't restrained. Um, they simply were asking him open-ended questions about what happened? What, what, what's going on here? And really, the only thing in his statement that he said was that he whipped Taylor uh, because she peed and pooped in the bed. Does the utilization of his statements by the prosecution, albeit the nurse was not operating on behalf of law enforcement, in any way elevate this to the potential of being a Miranda violation? Absolutely not, Your Honor. And I'll tell you, because he elicited the same exact statements from his own expert, his own expert, and she even gave more inculpatory testimony than what he gave to his gave to the law enforcement officers when he gave a statement at the hospital. His expert testified that he told her the same thing, that he had whipped Taylor because she peed and pooped in the bed, and he also admitted that he um, slammed her head up against the door, which was the cause, ultimately the cause of her death, the severe brain injury from blunt force trauma. So he elicited the exact same, and the, the trial court noted that, that he elicited the same exact testimony that was in his statement. So there is absolutely no way that that, even if you were to find there was a Miranda violation, which we are not conceding at all at this point, I, I think based on the totality of the circumstances, uh, that it was a voluntary admission. Um, but even if there was a, a violation, he elicited the same exact evidence and there's overwhelming evidence of his guilt in this case um, so that any any sort of violation of Miranda would be subject to a, a prejudicial a prejudice analysis, um, which he would also um, not, he would not be able to show prejudice in that based on this. Um, I've only got a few seconds left. If there are any other questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, I want to try to helpfully clear up a little bit of confusion. Batson and JEB are essentially frameworks for presentation of evidence. The analytical framework is how do we evaluate these claims of racial discrimination. Racial discrimination has been unconstitutional well before Batson. Batson is a procedural case. At step one, the court hears from the defense or the striking party, it could just as well be the state or a civil attorney, what the reason, what, what the evidence is for uh, a prima facie barrier. And the, and the court has said that is a very low bar to make a prima facie case. And in fact, the court must consider historical evidence of discrimination. It is then at step two, so the, 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 the moving party has the burden of production at step one. You then go to step two, at which point the prosecutor has to give his reasons, his subjective reasons for the strike. It is only then at that point that you move to step three and you start talking about the sort of considerations that you were discussing earlier, Justice Berger and Chief Justice Newby, about, well, this person was asleep, this person has got some other undesirable uh, reason why they wouldn't be a juror. We didn't even get to there in, that, in this case. The so, judge the judge has, so the judge has observed a juror fall asleep. For whatever reason, the judge refuses to strike the juror for calls. Honor, can the juror, can the judge not take that into account at step one, that he's observed the person fall asleep, he doesn't think it rises to the level of, uh, of a four calls, and then there's a challenge? 
The judge can consider it, Your Honor, but the, but the state, he can only consider it to the extent uh, he is evaluating whether the moving party has met their very low burden under Batson. That's part of the analysis of considering that, of isn't course. it? I'm agreeing with you, Your Honor. I'm saying that you have to, uh, you have to listen to the reasons the defense has given for the prima facie case and essentially accept them as true along with all of the other circumstances and facts, and then have, make a determination whether the prima facie case is met. And then at that point, you get into justifications. It is wholly, for something obvious like the person was sleeping, I hope that judge would excuse that juror for cause and not require a party to use a peremptory. But in that circumstance, that would be a situation where you know, maybe this immediate obvious justification language that Justice Irwin is talking about comes into play, which I agree with Ms. Vandenberg, is not mentioned anywhere in any of the U.S. Supreme Court law. Um, but that is, that, that is totally different than saying, well, the judge subjectively figured out this, that, and the other, and then didn't make a step one. That's the sort of post hoc generation of reasons that the U.S. Supreme Court has said time and time again is inappropriate. I only have a little bit of time left. I just want to conclude and say the state started its argument with a recitation of some of the facts in this case, and the facts are terrible. They are unspeakable in some circumstances. But if the rule of law matters at all, it matters not just in the easy cases and the convenient cases, it matters most in the hard cases. And this court has an opportunity to reiterate that the rule of law matters most in the difficult cases like this one. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone.